Welcome to Talking in the Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Today's episode of Talking in the Library is both professionally and personally dear to me. For the past two years, I've served as the creative director of a multi-layered project that reinterprets the 1763 Paxton massacres from the perspective of the indigenous peoples at the center of the story. At the heart of this project is Ghost River, the fall and rise of the Conestoga, a graphic novel written, illustrated, published, and printed by Native American partners. Today, I have the honor of discussing Ghost River with the author, Dr. Lee Francis, and the artist, Washoyo Alvitre. Lee has helped make Native Comics the rich field that it is today. Lee founded Indigenous Comic-Con, a space where authors and artists can build relationships, and he runs Red Planet Books and Comics, the means through which Native storytellers can publish, distribute, and sell their work on their own terms. He's one of the most well-intentioned, hardest-working people I've met, and I'm humbled that he's taken this journey with me. Weshoyo is the illustrator of numerous award-winning comics, graphic novels, and even video games. Notably, Weshoyo has become something of an expert in translating historical material into graphic forms. In November 2019, she was invited to discuss that very work at the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. Weshoyo has a unique gift for conveying the kaleidoscopic humanity of her subjects. Her work is positively incandescent, and I've been inspired by her expertise, passion, and commitment to justice. I'm grateful that she's lent her talents and her passions to this project. So as is our little tradition on talking the library, we're going to start by looking at an item. But instead of it being a collection item or even a digital copy of an item, we're going to look at a book. Uh, we're looking at Ghost River, The Fall and Rise of the Conestoga. And I'm here, of course, with the author and the artist. And I want to ask Lee Francis IV and Washoyo Alvitre to sort of talk to me about the image that they've selected for us to look at together. Washoyo, do you want to start us off? Yeah. Introducing the book, we have a picture of a large turtle that's representative of a creation story involving Turtle Island. Uh, the actual art piece is done on two 11 by 17 pieces of illustration board. It's pen and ink with pigment paints, and it depicts a large turtle with sort of trees growing on its back and petroglyphs, reminiscent of the petroglyphs from the river of the local native inhabitants scattered throughout the background. Yeah, so I think from the writing side, when we were originally talking about this and wanting to put this together, the idea was to come from a place of tradition. As we're telling this sort of historical narrative, if we're reframing this from the indigenous perspective and the perspective of the Conestoga people, the Susquehannock people, and the Lenape people, that it, you know, in our tradition as a as a Pueblo, we begin this from a time of creation. We, we begin all of our stories from this time of emergence, our, our origin. And so we were able to utilize and, and, and were gifted this in the, the Lenape creation story from back in the late 1600s uh, in terms of one of the first written accounts from one of our incredible consultants, Curtis Zuniga, our Lenape elder. And he was able to gift us this particular story so we could start this in a good place and we could tell the story of, of the emergence of Turtle Island and how it populated out the people as the beginning point. So when you read this, you know that the history of Native people doesn't just start with this one incident, but that the history starts from time immemorial. It goes back you know, tens, thousands, hundred thousand years for our people here in this area in Philadelphia and, and especially here in North America, which is our Turtle Island. 
Mm. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was so brilliant about this, and one of the reasons that I wanted to sort of give this project over to you too, is that I would have never thought to start it at this time, because as somebody who was raised in Western time, I think about like particular dates. I think about, oh, okay, is this a story of the Seven Years' War? Is it the story of colonization and contact? But to move it into this origin story, I think it does some really interesting work politically in moving it into Native time. So it's now outside of the Western construct of time, and that itself is a really powerful act. Yeah, that's one thing that I think permeates the entire graphic novel, too, the way that Lee bounces back and forth from the past to the present to the future. And I think that's one of the most powerful things about this is it kind of destroys that concept most people have of time and recreates it and then puts it on a presentation platter for people unfamiliar with the way that we digest time to kind of see it from a different light. Yeah, I think that was incredibly intentional. I've I come from this place. I think uh, Dr. Grace Dillon talks about this. It you know it's this idea of the slipstream that because if we think about time travel in a linear sense, which is the Western construct of time travel, right? You can go back in a point. You can you can you know alter the time point going forward, or it creates an alternate time stream. There's wonderful time time travel theories and whatnot. But within indigenous time, native time, because if we take that and we make it cyclical, then the slipstream is that you're you're constantly time traveling, you're constantly in motion, that you don't exist on a linear plane, you exist in a cyclical plane. And so I think that was that was one of the things that I wanted to bring in to the work that we did to demonstrate that. And how do we do that with a narrative that's nonlinear so that it bounces through times? And it's not that there's, you know, not that nobody's ever used a nonlinear structure. I, I'm well aware of that. But there's some philosophical underpinnings in terms of indigenous ways of being and knowing, indigenous philosophy and ontology and epistemologies that I, I continue to play with in my work and want to cycle, which is that this idea that history being an objective perspective, that history is, you know, that it's always based on objectivity. Well, that's, that is very much a Western concept as much as we can, because we've talked about that biases shift throughout time. So if we use that same construct, and we can put ourselves into this, into these frameworks, then we can, and ourselves personally, like they, we wrote some pages in here where, you know, where, where I'm in it, where you're in it, where we show you is in it. I, and, and I was very conscious about wanting to be able to do that so that we would play with these constructs in the narrative that we are, we are viewing this not just as the readers, but we are viewing this when we came in as the creative team. So our reflections are the, the bias. In fact, it's, I, I find it to be very, you know, I come from an academic background and that's, there's a section in the book where, you know, where it has us all looking around the documents. That's me explaining my bias at the beginning. Like what we would do in the academic world is we'd explain our biases up front. Well, I explained my biases in a section that moves the narrative forward. I was like, this is our biases. We are coming this from a native perspective and this is why you see what you see in this work. So I think that tying this all back into that beginning image that we are establishing this, you know, from from a nonlinear narrative. And I also want to say from a good place. So when we invoke this, when we invoke our traditional stories, when we invoke our creation stories, we're sort of asking creation to put us in a good space of reading. And so that's why we started it this way. It's like this is when you're coming into this, we're we're inviting you and in, in invoking creation to say, take this in a good heart and a good spirit. Yeah, I recently did a gallery tour with about 20 students from Penn Charter School here in Philadelphia, and they had read a digital copy of the book, so they didn't have the full experience that we're enjoying right now. But one thing that I found really interesting was, first of all, the point of frustration the students had with the, the sort of nonlinear movement of time and the sense that that then put 
historical actors in very close proximity with present actors, which is sort of the point. And second, that it raised this whole question of bias. And they were really getting stuck on that because, you know, as high schoolers, a lot of them have been raised on this 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 notion uh, that history is somehow unbiased, that it's somehow um, just based upon a neutral set of facts. I pulled one of the political cartoons that we looked at on our original research trip, and I asked them, you know, to look at it objectively and to tell me that it wasn't sympathetic to the Paxton boys' uh, view of this incident, that it wasn't bias in that historical record. And if there's bias in that historical record, and we accept that as somehow neutral, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, we were offered up when, you know, you initially proposed this project to us to allow us to speak on the behalf of not only indigenous communities, but the community involved in this uh, massacre. And to be able to do that and sort of reset, you know, what people feel comfortably is like what their accepted history is, I think is a very powerful thing. And I kind of look forward to upsetting the balance a little bit, you know, and seeing people's reactions, because I think that uncomfortable place is important for them to kind of feel and maybe question instead of just accepting every historical fact as, you know, truth. So that's kind of the fun thing, I think, with projects like this in history is you, the more research that you do, you can start questioning things. And I I hope that people in, you know, history research do question things instead of just accepting ephemera or, you know, factual knowledge documents, political documents as fact. I also think that there is an authority that's gained by putting it into print. Mm-hmm. You know, we come very much from an oral tradition, right? We're storytellers. And as I've said, we didn't control the printing presses. We didn't control the means of distribution. And so the authority that came out of that was gained by, you know, especially in this instance, war, you know, opposing sides. And so now we have the chance to to allow or to access that authority and to be able to say that this is it's in print so it must it must be true right like that that whole that old adage right it's in print now i guess it's if it's on the internet it must be true but <laughs> i still think that you know the authority that a book that an image that a picture gains thousands of years from now or hundreds of years from now is the same way that we will look at these documents that we see from the archive and the collection that have paralleled this work, that authority that came in at that time, now we've we've created this our own authority to be able to tell this particular side of the story. And I think it's fascinating with the kiddos. I think that's great because I think that cognitive dissonance is really important for learning. You know, what they've been told up to this point is X, Y, and Z. And then they come in and, and they're just like, the time shifts are weird. I don't know what's happening. I don't know if that's how they sounded. But they're, you know, they're 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 struggling, and I think to your point, Shoyo, is the idea of that struggle allows for learning because you have to your 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 schema is is kind of coming into tension with another schematic, another schema that's that's being presented before you, and so when you have those two things in play, I always say it's like it opens up a little window. And that window is where that learning can take place. And especially if that learning is reinforced, because then the perceptions come in and say, look like what you did, like, look at the bias that's already inherent in this. Look at the way that one of the things we pointed out immediately, look at the way that Native women are represented. Look at the way that the bias in the political cartooning and the imagery that was used of Native people at the time, because that's my big thing, especially working in a comic book medium or a graphic visual medium. 
look at the way that they they are represented that's not that is an absolute bias it's not historical now we can reflect on that but we reflect on it based on the time periods that we exist in so this is another facet to that and i think that's where we came from from the beginning is we just want another facet i'm not saying this is the end all be all well let me rephrase that i am saying this is the end all be all <laughs> from the you know from from an indigenous perspective but as we continue to learn more and our relatives and our ancestors and our future generations get involved, they're going to change this. So we create a platform for them to add another facet to the historical reckoning that we need to, especially here in the United States, the reckoning that needs to be understood about there are other voices that should be included. And we had hoped to do that. And I think we've succeeded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When discussing this, I've had a couple of people contact me and it comes up recently when I spoke at the Smithsonian, a lady came up to me afterwards and she said, I just found out this almost same thing uh, happened to a tribal group close to where I'm at. And I said, yeah, this same thing has happened to tribal groups all across the United States. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter what tribe that these people come from. They all have instances where genocide happened and they can relate to uh, the story that we chose to cover in this project. And one of the great things about that that Turtle Island image is that it does create a continuity between this specific people we're talking about, the Conestoga people and other Haudenosaunee groups that might have shared this tradition, shared this particular origin story. Mm-hmm. So it, it sort of opens up new continuities uh, with other indigenous groups that might have shared a similar kind of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the East Coast folks and the West Coast folks, there's, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we share these interrelated emergence, creation, migration stories. Jace Weaver, the great Cherokee scholar, talks a lot about this, is that there is, there's also this brilliant duality that can exist. Like, we can have an origin story that's Turtle Island. We can also have an origin story of migration that, you know, we crossed the continent. They don't have to exist, you know, separate from each other. And that goes back to that objective nature of history. Well, archaeologists tell us that, you know, that, that you all came across the land bridge and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, cool, cool, cool story, bro. I can also still believe this. That's why the human mind is pretty fantastic. Because I can say, okay, I got your archaeology. That's cool. And I also have this story. That's what I can observe as well. And I don't have to be dismissive of either. I don't have to credit one over the other. And I think, again, that's that facets that we put into historical, you know, the histories that we write. So when we put this book together, that was one of the things we ran into, right? There's this image, you know, one, because we get to play in images, which is so super cool. But the other part is that... Yeah, there's a historical record, uh, air quotes, that we know of. It is written, so it's, I guess it's not quoted because it's not really, you know. But we get, to, we get to play in these margins in a way that allows the, the fuller story to become much more vibrant and dynamic. And that, I think, is to the benefit of everybody. I mean, native, non-native, you get to play in these margins of these stories of powerful characters and powerful people and people that... You know, we're, we're going about their days, we're going about their, their lives and their business trying just to survive. And I love that. I mean, for me, that's the kind of history that I like the most is the history that, that plays in the margins. I can't remember what her name is. She's that super famous historian that started looking at like what the common people were doing because history only usually in, in, tends to focus on the white men, right? Like it tends to focus on these iconic characters. But what were the other people doing? What were the folks, you know, that, that had to clean things? I think it is. I cannot remember. I'm Mary, Mary Beard. I can't remember, but I, I'd have to look it back up. But I heard a great, I read a great interview with her and I was like, oh, this is exactly what we're trying to do, right? This is, 
this is the folks that you don't hear those stories from that that fill out the 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 best parts of humanity sometimes the worst but really i think like the folks that we don't know you know who i'm always i'm always fascinated with architects right these giant massive structures that everybody built you know built you know that weren't necessarily documented especially our structures like chaco canyon and the you know the the maya temples and the mounds and all the rest that i was like you had to have i'm like you had to have a foreman you had to have an architect like there was somebody that told people where everything was supposed to go this is what humans do so those are the parts that i find fascinating and i love adding that here let's talk about the elephant in the room none of us are conestoga none of us can be conestoga how did you two think about doing this kind of recuperative work I think from day one, we wanted to assure that there was representatives from the tribe that we could consult with and also if they had any input prior to us even beginning the project to lay it out on the table. I know when we first got here on our first trip, when we sat down with Curtis, he was very adamant and strong in saying that he wanted accurate representation for his tribe and he wanted it done respectfully. And everything that he said, I absolutely agreed with. And I just wanted to tell him that, like, you're in good hands. This is exactly where we're coming from. But that statement really needed to be said in that room, I think, because we encounter so many instances where people want to take from tribes and not necessarily do it correctly. Um, or they want to put out a product and just have a, a consultation person sign off at the very end. Gold star sticker. Um, and that's really not the way things should be done. And I think that's why a lot of people are hesitant in getting involved in projects like this, because so many times they backfire. So in, in having those representatives from the get-go, and then also having you with your historical background and your passion in the project, um, digitizing all the documents and everything, I could see that we were in good hands and that we had a lot of support from a lot of different places. And I think that is sort of the make or break with projects like this. I've seen a lot of projects like this with other uh, tribal stories start off from the ground and kind of hit in a stall because they don't have that support. And a lot of the time it's even financial support. We just don't often have the, the, the sources from academic representatives to help us with these types of things. A lot of the time it's, you know, from the ground research and we don't have somebody where you can organize all these things that brought this book together. So I think that was one of the strong points in, in putting this story together. And also, whenever we ran into anything, we could also just ask those people if we're on the right path or if they would change something and make edits um, as we progress through the story. I'm just a little Pueblo boy. So I'm obviously not Conestoga. And there is this, there is this uh, sort of understanding or this false understanding from the academy around indigeneity, which is, well, if you're Native American, you obviously speak for all Native Americans, uh, and you speak also uh, on behalf of all your people. I can give information about my community at, at Coake, at Laguna, but I don't speak on behalf of my people. I'm not authorized to do that. I think in some ways, there's a way that you can, you, you can gain that authority in a sense. And I, and I use authority as a term very loosely and it's really asking that permission of the people of that particular place. So I, so we, when we came out here and, and originally started this project, and you and I were talking about this from the beginning, that was a big thing for both of us, both Michelle and myself, is 
we needed to make sure that this was done right. I was like, I'm I'm located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I don't know this land. I don't know this home place. This is the home place of a, another group of people. We need to make sure that that they give us their blessing to proceed. And uh, and we did that at the beginning of the project when we all were around the table and together with Curtis and the folks from Circle Legacy and you know, the other Native folks that we had in that space. I think that was that's that's key and critical for any work when you work with Native communities that you're not a part of. And even if you are a part of, it is necessary to go and speak to certain people to make sure that you have that you have that gifting, you have that that designation to be able to tell the story in a way that that is proper and true that a lot of historians tend to forget. What they come at is from is this perspective of, you know, most most recently I'm thinking of um Peter Nabokov's when he did publish the Acma creation story. And that was a big that was a big thing deal at home for us, right? So we're very connected with Acma, uh, Aku, and basically took this thing that was in the library of Congress and it was in the archives and so it was free and clear in terms of IP, but the Acoma community was like, you, we don't, we don't reprint this. We don't tell this story. This is, this is a sacred story for us. So, and he didn't have, he had one, one person, one tribal member from years before. And he's like, but this story is really important. It needs to get out there in the world. And this was the, this was the framework that he brought to it. And the take from us back home was this is, this, we, we've tried to tell you not to be able to do this. And we know we don't have legal standing, but there's a moral obligation because our stories have not been ours as Native folks for 500 years at this point, 400 years at this point. So I think the way we went about it, and, I, and, and much kudos to you, Will, the way that I think you had a good eye and understanding on how to put this thing together was, was a, an exemplar process. And what I would love to see more historians and communities doing in terms of building this together in a way that that has a responsibility and obligation and a, a reciprocity mm-hmm. within the community. Yeah, I absolutely agree with uh, Lee. I mean, the way I, I couldn't have asked for a better start to finish on this, the way it was organized and all the different outlets that you reached out to to make it as unbiased as possible, having historians, having um, experts on certain documents, having the actual documents for us to look at. But then also circling back and having such a, a strong support from the Native community, because this isn't my tribal you know, story. This isn't my people. And I know it was discussed, too, when we first started this, that it's, it's a lot of weight to bear when you're handling other people's culture and traditions and stories. And you need to you know, ask permission to, to do that and also do a good job with it. So I'm, I, I think this book is just such a great example of all those things yeah this and and not to get too confessional but now i'll get kind of confessional this this project has given me anxiety in a way that all of my other academic work hasn't when i'm writing about you know fiction of charles brockton brown i know that he's not going to get that upset with me if i say something (laughs) that's you know dubious but that that word responsibility and the fact that i have a responsibility to people that are here now that continue to be here and sustain these traditions that weighed really heavily on me in this process. And I don't know that I got everything right. I don't know that we did. But I certainly hope that people will look at this and say it was a really good faith effort. And that sort of gets us to something very specific that I know, Lee, you advocated for. And I'm so glad that you advocated for it, which was 
to include an annotated script in the back of this book. Do you do a do a do a you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah, no, it's I've seen it in other comics, so it's not. I mean, I cribbed from the medium, hmm. but I love I love seeing the behind the scenes. It's one of my favorites. Going in, if you look at the script work or some of these annotated scripts of stuff like Alan Moore, there's an annotated Watchmen or you know with the script scripting, and you see that you know Alan Moore is is a a crazy a madman a genius madman right like the first couple of pages leading into Watchmen or you know like Killing Joke and stuff you know things that he's put together the Batman stuff he writes like five or six pages it's just going to turn into one page but seeing that process I've always felt is I love kind of peeling behind the curtain Mm -hmm. I also felt for this and speaking to what you just talked about is that good faith effort is showing that the conversations behind the scene were also, I think, very important. So not only do you see the script, but you see our annotations of where we were kind of going back and forth in emails, where we were discussing various things, why we made particular choices that we made. I mean, even to the point of the conversation about using Conestoga over, you know, Susquehannock or something else. And, and we, you and I had, had deliberations about the naming of people because I'm, I'm a huge advocate for using the names that people call themselves, right? Because too often there are names that are applied to other people that are not the names that we refer to ourselves as. But we have no record because they were obliterated in this act. And so even that part of the conversation, I think, sparks some very dynamic pieces. But you wouldn't see that on the page, right? Like you wouldn't see that just from the comic itself that we sort of agonized over, you know, the deliberation, that we agonized over a couple of the conversations around how we were going to frame certain things that there were, you know, certain things that we didn't catch dates or somebody comes in as like, you missed this part, but even just adding deeper, adding things that are much more like richness. Some of the historical annotations I think are absolutely fabulous because they give even a broader perspective. We can only capture a small bit in 60 pages, but the annotations capture some of these other pieces where like Dan was putting in stuff and Curtis was putting in stuff and you and I were adding little extra elements and bits here and there that add a lot more context to the story. I also love anytime I can showcase original art, right? So that, so that you can see how this went from, you know, this, this, this script to some sketches to pencils, and then you have the final copy in the background. I think it's showcasing the art is so also really magnificent for the art that you've done. Well, thank you. I'm like, I'm flipping through the annotations. Right. <laughs> I'm one of those people that loves to watch the behind the scenes on films and listen to the director's commentary. That's so. it. So we just did a director's commentary, essentially, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but yeah, I'm very appreciative, too, that you also included like the sketches and stuff because there, there's a lot. I, I love sketchbooks from other artists. And um, my, my pencil sketches are so much different than the final inks. Uh, I was really trying to mimic a lot of the old illustrations that we referenced and get a feel kind of that bordered between modern comic book art and then the old uh, fine line illustration. And I hope that, you know, fellow artists can flip through that and kind of see my process a little bit by providing the sketches and the thumbnails. And some of my thumbnails are very, very loose, which is people ask me about that, too. But just process. I mean, there's so much process that went behind this book. And I'm so glad that it's being celebrated in the back of it. 
Yeah, and it's not just celebrated in the book. We've done a lot of work with a documentary team that I know both of you spoke with at Mangrove Media. And the whole idea was that we wanted to really honor the process. So we had these documentarians really with us from the get-go. And so in addition to everything that we could contain in that codex form, there's also the digital version of Ghost River, ghostriver.org, where we've integrated the documentary video that they created, the behind you know, or the making of the making of, yeah. Yeah. The making of Ghost River. But then one thing that I'm indebted to Anne McShane for is that she's gone through hours and hours and hours of raw video and clipped out some amazing clips that we then use to annotate the version of the book that you can flip through online. So as you're clicking through, you can click a little I button. And Anne worked with Nicole Scalessa and they develop something where it pulls up these little video clips, images, essays that enrich that experience without necessarily distracting from it. And I mean, that digital edition is important to me because the book, we're gonna distribute as widely as we can. I know that one priority that we had, Lee, was that we would distribute this to all federally recognized tribes. Is that right? Yes, yeah. So we'll be putting that together once they all arrive in the shop and they'll all go out. But, you know, just, just to problematize in, the, in, a, in a, the academic parlance, that very effort, that's really great for reaching federally recognized tribes. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> or everyone in Pennsylvania. There's no federally recognized tribe in Pennsylvania. Wow. So the exactly. very folks that we were working with at Circle Legacy Center, if we didn't have that relationship, they wouldn't know about this project with that outreach plan. And so the aspiration of making a digital edition that's available in different formats that rich version, but also just like a PDF that you can download, an EPUB file that you can read on your Kindle. That is integral to making this as widely accessible to as many people as possible. And giving a template for other folks to be able to tell this kind of story. We've been talking about California natives and needing to tell the stories of, you know, the gold rush has this mythology around it. It does not encounter in the school. You're just like, oh, look, these, and they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got all the gold that we needed and it was like yeah and in the meantime they decimated the the natives around those communities those were the you know some of the most horrific atrocities that were committed in the indian wars right i'm like you know in that sense of people just wiping out villages and wiping out communities and whatnot so again the the facets of history that need to be reconciled that just the responsibility that we need to just address them i think because a lot of it's buried so having it so widely distributed allows other people to say like hey I think we should tell our story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think we should we should put our story to a comic book or a visual medium or a, a film or a movie in a way that reorients the viewer and the audience to a different format of history. Funny enough, you know, we have the, the in the book we have that end scene, and that we were talking about this earlier and these these parallels in history. There's that end scene where they all finish praying. And the Paxton murderers come in and they say amen and then they're, you know, they're wiped out, right? They're, they're, they're massacred. And I was reading, some, I was doing some research on Philadelphia native tribes and the folks around here, the Lenape, and there's a, there's a reference of a group of, you know, Lenape that were murdered, about 60 of them, and they were singing hymns while they were slaughtered. And I was like, wow, they just did not intend to write, like, I didn't know that research until just a couple of days ago, but we already have these parallels, you know, and so there's, so there's a representation in this story. We know there's other representations that are very similar to that from Native folks throughout this continent 
that, you know, that faced their aggressors in a way that was heroic, you know, not tragic, not, not fetishizing tragedy, but in a way that was very heroic. And I hope that we provide an inspiration for our other communities to come out and put their stories to pen in some way that can help correct the narrative and enhance the narrative. Exactly. I mean, just working on this book alone and just from the the beginning process from, you know, visiting different sites to bringing that back, doing research on my own, it really kind of enhanced the way that I will be doing books in the future because I am doing some like books on California history. But by combining the academic research with, you know, the documents that are available and are digitized, I don't know if you call it intuitive writing, you tap into something that's really incredible. Like with your your story with the hymns and them dying as they were singing hymns, like there's things that I've encountered writing something and then you find a historical document that either visually like supports exactly what you created or through writing or something, the, the facts support what you're doing. And you just feel like you're on the right track when you get to that point. It's You're, you're tapping some weird median between the two of them, between factual knowledge and actual physical artifacts and this non-material spirituality. I don't know. You could People have different names for it. But yeah, it's, it's an incredible thing. Can uh, we dwell a little bit on that Lancaster scene? Because I know I have a very, <laughs> it, it, it sort of seared into my mind the changes we made very late in the process uh, yes. on that one. Because we were working on that scene, you had this amazing vision. Both of you had sort of put together this scene where it was going to unfold in the basement of the Lancaster jail. And then one of our outside readers, Jack Brubaker, very courteously said, no, that's not how it happened. And so we were pretty far along in the process. And I knew the care that you, Weshoyo, had put into mapping out that scene. I knew that you were committed to it, Lee. And I was just like, I don't know how we're going to untie this Gordian knot. And so then we did. And I think that what emerged from it was really, really special. So I was hoping that both of you, uh, Lee first as the author and then Weshoyo as the artist, can talk a little bit about how we got out of that jam. Yeah. So the original idea, just the thematic structure, was we had two. We had like three parallels that were going on. So we had the wampum and the wampum belt figuring very prominently. We had the river figuring very prominently because that source of life, that source of where people come from. And then the counterpart to the Paxton murderers that they didn't get faces. They are the they're the boogeymen of this story. So they were shadows. They are they are murderous shadows. So the way that the you know the first the the massacre at Conestoga itself at the township, the home place, that was originally done. That it was these creeping shadows that came in and then disappeared in smoke and fire, and so paralleled that when they came in again into the workhouse and it was down in the basement of the workhouse and the you know the the uh, the scene is kind of looking up through the doorway. And these shadows come in and it goes to black because the shadows surround the folks. And then it recedes as we pan back from the workhouse, which is still in the book, which is still part of in the book. The, the shadows recede and it pans back away from that into this snowy winter day. And that was what we originally put, put to paper. That was what I originally wrote because I, I, you know, that idea of that they don't, they, they're faceless. They've already had their time and this is not their story. So they don't need faces. They don't need identities in this particular story. And then, and, and there are, we have taken Definitely, you know, definitely we've taken particular liberties, not with the history, but in the sense of we're telling the native story and it is not documented by the academic space. 
So we have these little niches and these pathways that we could follow and how we could create dialogue and how we could create conversations. And so we get to this point, Jack Brubaker points out, he's like, uh, yeah, so no, all records show that they weren't in the basement. And I was like, I, I swear, I was like, I swear I read something where they were down, down in the workhouse. And he's like, nope, it was, down, it was out in the courtyard. And in fact, it's captured in that other terrible 18, whatever representation. The, the Wimmer engraving. Yeah. The Wimmer engraving with the men in hats and, you know, their top hats and whatnot while they're slaughtering the natives. And I was like, so there was, so, so there was something there. And so you were just like, we might need to change this. You were, so, you were so generous. You were just like, if it's okay, like, I don't, you know, I know you guys worked so hard on this. Can, can we change it? And I was like, let me, let me, let me think on it. I, I was kind of at, you know, I was a creative just block. I was like, I don't know. I don't know where I want to be with that. And we show you was like, I got it. And I, and I think, you know, this is why, this is why you have writers and artists working together on comics. Cause you can figure out, I think that creative tension and a creative solution absolutely made it much more powerful. I was like, all right, you, you got this hands down. This is a much better scene than I wrote, you know, which is hard to admit as a writer and an artist. Um, but <laughs> it came you. out so magnificently because then it tied in that other thread. So we still have the faceless, you know, the, the faceless murderers. Uh, we still have the, the shadows and the boogeyman. But then we tie it back into the wampum. And that, that visual representation of the massacre being the breaking of the belt, I don't think I, I don't even know. That's, that's all I got. I'm in awe. I'm in <laughs> awe of what came out. Yeah, I, it was it was late in the game when we had that. I had it all storyboarded, and I remember thinking, "Oh man," because I was so ready to like, "Okay, this is the dark part of the story." You know, it's going to get real graphic and gritty, and I was trying to think of ways to do that with the pen and ink style. And then Lee kind of told me, "Oh, well, we got to change." <laughs> so I was thinking a lot about light and dark because he used it as a theme throughout the book between these faceless murderers and then just the the landscape, snow, and it being in winter time. I was thinking a lot about that. And I was also thinking in a lot of communities, too, with Catholic Christian religions, you kind of have the light and the dark. The dark is kind of the bad thing. The, the white is more of the good. But a lot of the time, white also represents funerary either objects or situations within indigenous communities. So white is often used, you know, with ceremony that has to do with funerary processions or displays. So that's something I was thinking about while I was trying to figure out how can we, how can we, you know, redo this. And if they are in broad daylight, then am I going to have to draw, you know, vicious, brutal murdering out in a courtyard? And so I was also trying to problem solve how can I do that and make it hit hard with the reader, but not make it just gore and violence like what you would expect. So I was trying to think of a creative solution. The, the black and white kept going back and forth, black and white, black and white. And I was thinking what happens to snow when people walk on it, you start seeing the ground come up through it and it reminded me of the wampum belt. So we get in and I just thought, what if we use... The I'm sorry, <laughs> I just love that page. You just did that so well. I'm if, sorry. If yeah. we use, yeah, God. the beads as representations because I was also doing, I kept bugging Curtis. <laughs> I kept sending him emails to see if I could pick his brain about wampum. I wanted to know how it was put together. I wanted to know if there is ceremony involved in cutting the beads or harvesting the beads, or if only specific people were allowed to cut the wampum beads. So I had all these questions. And that was something early on that I, I was, hey, can I get like a phone call with you? And it never really lined up, but I kept going back and forth with him via email. And it was always on my mind because I think the belts are just so exquisite. But each, each bead, I mean, is like a person. So that's how we kind of got into that thinking if those beads are scattered, you know, 
whatever treaty they had or whatever trust they had is broken. And when you go and massacre people, you know, who are converted to your religion, that's just absolute broken trust. So I was trying to parallel those two things. And luckily, you know, Lee was open to (laughs) a, a couple of visual changes and stuff. And I think the contrast between dark and light too over those like five pages is pretty effective in maintaining his theme between dark and light with the the shadow or the faceless figures that you know do the murdering but also in illuminating the faces of the people that died and giving them you know the the light literal daylight to show them in these pages and before they are wiped out and then also the snow. I mean, it just, it's, it was a, a nice solution to a problem, yeah. I think. Well, and we've gone back and forth on our previous work. We had similar conversations because we worked together on Six Killer, which is the comic that I wrote. And we had an instance of violence in that scene as well. And we had to kind of readjust that because that's one of the things that, that sort of, you know, when you're writing it conceptually in your head, you're saying, you know, these various things and, and then it's translating it from the written word or the conceptual to a visual image. And it is a thing that I kind of go back and forth on. And I was, even when we, we did Six Killer, it's a little hedgy. And on this is, uh, and I think you commented on this, we'll show you about this idea of continuing to portray dead natives, right? So like, this is something that we see so much through popular media. And it just continues to reinforce this narrative that that's, you know, that's what, that's what happens to native folks, right? So I think the the brilliance of what we we tried to write around all, both with the shadows but also even in the refiguring of this page was to not show instances of blood but not showing you know scattered dead natives on the ground right because it just continues to reinforce that and I think that that's one thing that I've been I try to write against very often is showing live natives right so so we we wrap the two sections of the book where the massacre happens you don't see that action one is in wampum, the other is in the breaking of the wampum at the end of the story. And then the rest of the book is surrounded by live faces, the people of, you know, Circle Legacy, you know, the people at the end of the book, the women that are so important and, you know, and the trees that are surrounding them at the, as the final page of the book. You know, that's, that's the, what we want to put together with all of this. So that reconfiguring of it, although, you know, mine didn't have, you know, that, that it was like a creeping, whatever, but that reconfiguring of it. So we do it in the snow, but with like the hints of, of the red so you know that violence occurred but we don't have to see the end result of that which is so disheartening for our native folks yeah and just to shamelessly plug our exhibition that's going to be open at the library company featuring the original artwork of West Shoyo until April 10th 2020 so you've got a good window here one of the the things I was really grateful that the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage allowed me to do was to allocate some of the money that I had placed elsewhere to commission a wampum choker to be created and integrated into the exhibition. It's created by this amazing Wampanoag artist named Elizabeth James Perry. And I think what's so powerful about it is, first of all, it gives you a sense of the materiality and the intricacy and the beauty of these of these symbols of kinship. But, but second, the fact that it's created by a living Native artist, I think is really important because it brings to bear the fact that this is a set of traditions, cultural practices, ways of being that have continued into the present. And so that is the sort of last archival item in our last case. And I think it's a really powerful moment because it not only connects with this text, but looks forward to the present and future. 
beautiful thing. I didn't. Yeah, no, I saw it, it yesterday. You've seen it. I haven't <laughs> seen it yet. I was, I was like, <laughs> and Eddie told me the story behind it. I was like, oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. And, you know, it's small, it's delicate, but at the same time, if you are to pick it up, it has such weight. It has such weight. And it's all done with the original process by hand with deer skin. Is she going to be at the exhibition? She will. Oh, I want to talk to you. (laughs) Yes. So it's right up my alley. (laughs) I need to let you guys get back to a very busy day. But before I do, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about something that you're doing after Ghost River. What is something that you're working on now that you'd like to share with our community? Right now, I am working on an extended version of a book that's very close to home called Toy Purina. And it's about a Tongva medicine woman who lived in the 1700s. And she led a revolt against the San Gabriel mission and its system in 1785. And sort of her life prior to that, and then what happened to her afterwards, where she was imprisoned while pregnant, and then shipped north to marry a Spanish soldier. And I've also, through the process of research, found that my ancestor also defied the mission system during that time. He was a Spanish soldier, and he ended up marrying a Native woman, and he was imprisoned at the San Gabriel Mission at the same time as Toy Purina, and subsequently sent up to the Presidio in Santa Barbara after that. But his land grants given to him up in San Jose literally parallel a lot of her relatives and further life story. So it's, it's been incredible to do the research and to find all these things that I didn't even know existed before I started the project. I'm excited about it. So two things, Indigipop X, which is where I met you two years ago, the Indigenous Comic Con and our Indigenous Futurisms Days are now part of a big downtown festival, pop celebrating names in pop culture. So comic books, graphic novels, games, film and television, food, fun futurism. It's going to be a great event. So that's that's looming on the horizon. That's in March of 2020. And then uh, working with our local PBS station on a new television show uh, that I'll be writing for a digital piece called Indigenius, Indigenius, where we're going to be talking about traditional native, you know, objects, artifacts, ways, practices, etc. that are grounded in science that we knew for a very long time. And so we're, we're showing that Native folks, you know, the world over have been kind of doing things right because we never get that, that chance to be scientists. We, we're, we're very spiritual. We're all the rest, right? But now we get to be like, no, no, we actually, we're really smart. And we figured out astronomy and how to carry babies and how to make food in the ways that are most, you know, natural and resourceful. So that's going to be coming up. We're going to start, uh, we're working on some of the early episodes right now. Well... Thank you both for setting aside time on what is otherwise a very busy day and for really continuing on this journey with me. This has been one of the the real pleasures of my academic and, and, and personal career here, and I'm honored to share a byline with you folks on this. Vice versa. And to you and the library company and Pew and everybody else that put their their time, energy, resources, faith. And, and our communities, Circle Legacy, and all of our advisors, and all of our historians that allowed this to come to life. So I just want to say, Tawai, thank you for allowing me to be a part of this too. Yeah, I'm, I'm very thankful to everybody involved. And I, I really think that everybody that helped us put this book together, it shows in the final product. And I hope that everybody's you know, so proud of the thing that came out of this whole process, because it was a really beautiful thing. And I, I really, I think my one wish is that it's seen not only as an academic template, but also something that helps 
to heal a lot of negativity that otherwise would maybe be disregarded or just thrown to the wayside. And I think projects like this can heal a lot of pain that has been existing for hundreds of years while voices weren't given the chance to, to speak up. So I think it's I hope it's healing for all the tribal communities involved, as well as the academics that are researching this project. What a powerful place to end. Thank you both. To celebrate the publication of the library company's first graphic novel, I've curated a free public art exhibition, which runs from November 11th to April 10th, 2020. Please do pay us a visit. In the next episode of Talking in the Library, I'll speak with the library company's 288th annual dinner keynote speaker, David Blight, author of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom.